Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Monday, May 3rd. John, what do you want to talk about today? Well, the so-called jungle primary in Texas's 6th Congressional District, which is Tarrant County near Dallas, has given us a chance to gauge the strength of Donald Trump's endorsement. And I'm also curious to get your take on Verizon's sale of its media businesses to a private equity firm, Apollo. How about you? Well, I want to get your thoughts on a piece in the Financial Times today about how progressive millennial attitudes explain the schism between corporate America and the Republican Party. Then after the break, we'll hear your interview with Walter Russell Mead, who writes the Global View column for The Wall Street Journal. All right, let's get to the science and tech headlines. First, we've long thought of COVID-19 as a respiratory disease, but researchers at the Salk Institute and UC San Diego have confirmed that the disease is primarily vascular. That is, it attacks the blood vessels. That helps explain the wide range of symptoms caused by COVID. The scientists focused on the spike protein that famously dots the virus's surface, and they documented for the first time how these spikes play a role not just in infection, but in damaging cells that line the arteries. I'm not sure I'm qualified to speak to the importance of this story, but I saw it this morning in Science Daily, and Uh I thought that's a real change from how we understood the disease up to this point. Yeah, absolutely. Next, researchers have identified four different types of Alzheimer's. Scientists used machine learning to analyze brain scans of healthy patients as well as ones afflicted by Alzheimer's. With the results, researchers found four distinct ways that proteins get tangled up among neurons in different parts of the brain. Such tangling is closely linked to the disease's progression. The research could help explain why different patients suffer the symptoms they do and offer up treatment ideas accordingly. The research was published in the journal Nature Medicine. Four different types. In Saturday's news items, we I put in a piece about a driving test uh-huh. that alerts you with 88% efficacy uh, to whether you will later have Alzheimer's disease. Really? So, uh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that driving test telling us which of the four uh-huh. iterations of Alzheimer's one will have. All of this research, you know, coming from all of these different directions is going to lead us to a more specific understanding of my Alzheimer's compared to yours. And we can only hope that they speed the research up. All right, let's move on to the news items. The jungle primary in Texas's 6th Congressional District has given us another chance to assess the value of a Donald Trump endorsement. The district's former representative, Ron Wright, was the first sitting member of Congress to die from COVID-19 in February, and his widow, Susan Wright, was endorsed by Donald Trump. According to the unofficial count, she came in first, but with an underwhelming 19% of the total. Jake Elzey, a state legislator who was attacked as being close to the Never Trump movement, came in second with 13 percent. They both move on to a runoff. So, John, what do these results tell us about Trump's endorsement? Well, back in the days when I was working at Fox Business, I worked closely with the Fox News decision desk. And one of the Mm -hmm. questions we always pondered was, what is the impact of a Trump endorsement? And in the Alabama Senate race, in which Doug Jones, the Democrat, miraculously defeated Roy Moore, the Republican, 
in large measure because of charges of pedophilia Mm -hmm. against Mr. Moore. Trump went to Mississippi in a media market that serves as part of Alabama, and he endorsed um, Moore. Mm -hmm. And so because of the way that the Fox News Decision Desk does its polling, they had been in the field already and followed it all the way through Election Day. And the result was that there was no visible impact of Trump's endorsement one way or t'other. In the case of this congressional race, Mm -hmm. I think he endorsed Susan Wright on Thursday. And at the time... I believe from friends of mine who were polling there that Wright had a 11-point lead. Mm-hmm. So Trump endorses her, and, and my suspicion is that he endorsed her because they all thought she would win. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And so it would look like Trump's endorsement had sort of sealed the deal, and he could say that he was the big dog and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. She got, I mean, 19 0.21% is what's been reported so far, mm-hmm. which is underwhelming, to say the least. The second candidate, uh, Mr. Elzey, he was attacked for being insufficiently devoted to MAGA and Trump. He finished second. It's a jungle primary, so everybody runs in the top two, then run off. Mm-hmm. Uh, bad news for Democrats is, obviously, they didn't get a candidate into the mm-hmm. runoff. But mm-hmm. aside from that, It appears that Trump's endorsement had no impact at all, and that actually her, quote, comfortable lead, end quote, wasn't that comfortable. Now, the Trump people will argue, well, there were other candidates who were, you know, vying for Trump's endorsement. They were all in with the MAGA agenda, whatever that is. And so you can't say that Trump didn't have a lot of support in this primary, because if you added up all the various candidates who were pro-MAGA, it would come to a number in the 40s. And I I suppose that's true. But if he's such a big dog, why doesn't he move the needle? Mm -hmm. It just wasn't impressive. And politicians pay very, very careful attention to these kinds of results, not because they think they're definitive, but because they think they're indicative. Yeah. And I wonder if this isn't a little bit of a change in the perception of Trump's political juice, let's call it. Well, perception is everything, right? Indeed. <laughs> perception is reality. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to the next item. Robert Altman the former Deputy U.S. Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton and now the Chief Executive Officer of Evercore, today published an opinion piece in the Financial Times. He defends corporations that have taken vocal stances against restrictive voting laws and bills pushed by the Republican Party in any number of states by pointing to more liberal attitudes among millennials. Rebecca. Yes. Can you explain this thesis of Mr. Altman's? All right. Well, he seems to be saying that demographics are destiny, that woke corporatism, if you want to call it that, is here to stay, largely because millennials already represent 35% of the U.S. workforce and that companies that do not take a stand on issues like the Georgia voting law face employee defections. I mean, I didn't realize, actually, that millennials were so were already so such a large demographic. I mean, I was somewhat surprised by that. Indeed. By 2050, there will be 25 million more millennials than any preceding generation. 
they align closely with what you would consider liberal political views. 52% say racism is the main reason why black people in the United States, quote, can't get ahead. 79% say that immigration strengthens society. So from Altman's standpoint, the dovetailing of the prevailing views of this generation with corporate activism is inevitable. Thought of Don McNeil at the New York Times, who was chased out of the building for things he said. Yeah. But when it came for the face-to-face with the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, he was told that, quote, you've lost the building, meaning the Mm -hmm. reporters and editors could no longer abide his presence at the New York Times. And you thought to yourself, that's not the way it used to work. Mm -hmm. People don't get to vote on other people's jobs. But Mr. Altman's making the point that if you're the CEO of a major corporation, you have to pay careful attention to what your workforce believes and thinks that your company should stand for, or otherwise you might lose the building. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at Basecamp, which is a technology company in Silicon Valley, they banned political discussion inside the walls of the company, if you will, and a third of their workforce resigned. So this is the beginning of that. It's not It's not the middle or the end, that's for sure. But moving on, let's go to the next news item. Which is truly a mystery. <laughs> Verizon has sold its media assets, including Yahoo, AOL, TechCrunch, and Engadget to the private equity firm Apollo Global Management. Apollo will pay $5 billion for a 90% stake in a new company called simply Yahoo. Verizon paid a combined $8.9 billion for Yahoo and AOL, and it begs the question, why would anyone think Yahoo and AOL are worth even $5 billion? I mean, what's surprising to me is that Verizon is selling those at such a loss. Yeah. Apollo is not, they are not newcomers to media. They have a significant shareholding in Cox Media Group's radio and television assets. I just don't know what they're planning on on doing with it. The media division of Verizon has been a moneymaker. It had like close to $2 billion in sales in Q1, which was 10% above last year. So it is revenue generating. It's really just an issue of why they, I suppose, A, why they're selling, B, why they sold at such a loss, C, what Apollo plans to do with those things. What do you, I mean, you're the media expert here, John. I mean, I don't, what are you looking at me for? <laughs> I mean, the obvious thing is Verizon is taking that money, essentially, and investing it in 5G, which makes sense. Uh-huh. So they're getting out of a business that they probably shouldn't have been in in the first place. Yeah. Second, Yahoo is not informidable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yahoo Finance is by far the number one financial news and financial service website mm-hmm. in the world, and they have a business channel right. uh, that has done pretty well. Yeah. Ben Smith had a column recently in the New York Times saying that digital advertising was on a comeback trail and that things were looking up in that regard. So these are not hopeless assets. It's not Verizon selling HuffPost to BuzzFeed for essentially a dollar. Yeah. The thing I don't understand is what the play is for Apollo. Right. Okay. and I was counting on you to tell me, but well, now, I don't know. now now you're leaving me here all by myself. Okay. The general statement I would make is that at a time when valuations are sky high for most private equity deals and that there is too much money looking for too few deals to go around and people almost can't, I mean, the multiples almost can't get high enough. Why are AOL and Yahoo so cheap? 
this would be the time to get to get the price you never should have gotten in any other market environment. And yet, uh, I was surprised that they paid five billion. Frankly, I think five billion is a pretty good deal uh, from Verizon's point of view. Mm-hmm. I just think there's a lot of excitement about media, not because it's a particularly good business, and it's obviously going through a transition, a significant one. The internet has completely disrupted virtually every media business. But, you know, people like it. It's, you know, bold-faced names and yep. page six. You know, I think they think it's fun. But moving on, John, you talked to Walter Russell Mead recently about global affairs and the blob. What is the blob for our listeners who aren't in the know? The blob was a term coined by Ben Rhodes, who was the national security advisor to President Obama at the end of uh, his second term. It refers to the foreign policy establishment that emerged after the Cold War. People in the blob generally espouse neoliberal policies. They're hawkish on American interventions, moderate on domestic policies, and lately they believe, fervently believe, that America is in decline. The blob is everywhere in Washington. In some cases, they have their own buildings like the Brookings Institute and so on and so forth. Walter disagrees with the blob's assessment on virtually every issue. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing an optimistic take on the country from Walter Russell Mead. So we'll take a quick break. Welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Walter Russell Mead, the Ravenel B. Curry Distinguished Fellow in Strategy and Statementship at Hudson Institute in Washington. Walter is the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College and the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal. From 1997 to 2010, Mr. Mead was a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, serving as the Henry A. Kissinger Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy from 2003 until his departure. He is a member of Aspen Institute Italy. He is the author of a book, Special Providence, American Foreign Policy and How It Changed the World, which was widely hailed by reviewers, historians, and diplomats as an important study that will change the way Americans and others think about American foreign policy. I could go on at some length about Walter's resume, but I think I'll stop there. Walter, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to be here, John. Today, we're going to talk about three big things, the United States, China, and Russia. All right. Great, John. Ben Rhodes, who was uh, President Obama's national security advisor, referred to the Washington foreign policy establishment as the blob. I think of the Washington opinion establishment as the bigger blob. And one of the things that the bigger blob believes, of course, is that the U.S. is in decline and doomed and on and on. You wrote a great column last fall in which you said, actually, it's a world of geopolitical opportunity for the U.S. All this hand-wringing is misplaced. The U.S. is in a strong position. Yeah. What caused you to write that? Well, John, you know, one thing is, you know, we're reaching the point where you and I both have memories that stretch back for many decades. And as I uh, think about my life, one of the things I realize is that one of the most constant factors of my entire life uh, has been the cry that America is in decline. And even uh, back in the 1950s, when I was barely aware, they changed the way Americans were studying math because the Soviet Union had launched Sputnik and America was losing the space race 
because our kids didn't know math and it was a terrible thing. And so I had to learn base five and all these like set theory and all these strange things in the third grade because of American decline. <laughs> then we had the missile gap. You know, they were eating our lunch in outer space and well, the missile gap went away. And then, you know, there was the balance of payments deficit. There's a Vietnam War it destroyed America's credibility forever. You know, just on and on, collapse of Bretton Woods. Then there was like Germany and Japan are the countries of the future. America's doomed. Japan is the new superpower. It's hopeless. We've failed. America has been failing, you know, all my life. And yet somehow, what is it that Orwell, I think it was, said that the dark night of fascism is always falling on the United States, but landing in Europe. And... <laughs> The specter of decline has been with us, and yet somehow at the end of every episode of decline, people keep talking about, well, the United States still seems to have some decline left. <laughs> so I'm actually a little bit tired of the course, because none of the people who will tell you America's in decline and you know, you know, they're just so upset about it and so worried about it, none of them ever tell you why the other predictions of American decline were so wrong, but now something fundamental has changed. And this prediction of American decline is fundamentally different and therefore needs to be taken more seriously. No one ever does that. You pointed to two things that contradicted the narrative, tech and fracking. Could you give us a look as to why you said those two things are so important? You know, you look back at the last uh, 30 years and you know, the, the rise of Silicon Valley and uh, the way these corporations that have come out of it, the technology that have come out of it, are reshaping virtually every element of human society. That's rather destabilizing and, and you know, has lots of consequences, but it is clearly the case that, that the United States has been the leader in this immense wave of change and that tech supremacy contributed massively to the rise in American military power, you know, where we might used to have to send an expeditionary force into, say, Syria to fight ISIS or something like that. You can really do it now with very small numbers of people on the ground who are hooking up local forces to the information network that we can provide. This whole range of capabilities Yes, other countries are catching up. You can't rest on your laurels. But again, other countries perceive what they need to do is to catch up with the United States. Then when it comes to uh, fracking, I think that when people look back at the history of the Obama administration, they're going to say that one of the biggest geopolitical changes in that period was that American oil output began to grow enormously. And that in the last 10 years, we've actually at times surpassed Saudi Arabia as the largest producer of oil. That, among other things, this allows us to significantly reduce our footprint in the Middle East, which I probably don't have to tell many of the listeners of this podcast is a very good idea <laughs> if you're trying to think about American foreign policy. The, the less you have to do there, the better off you are. I don't think we can talk to the Global View columnist from the Wall Street Journal without talking about the Thucydides trap, which Graham Allison, I think, wrote a book with that title. Uh, and it holds that a rising power like China must clash with an established power. So you wrote a very great column that ran on the op-ed page in 2018. 
in which you said the Thucydides trap wasn't the problem. The problem was that imperialism will be very dangerous for China. Can you explain why? Yeah, I think if you look at the BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, what you actually see there is that China is facing a real economic problem, which is that over the years of China's own construction of its economy, it's built up all of these you know, steel companies and concrete companies and infrastructure companies, and they want to stay in business and they want to grow. <laughs> Surprisingly. <laughs> yes, I know. It's remarkable. Their employees want to keep their jobs. And yet, you know, China doesn't need as much infrastructure as it used to, and yet it has a lot more infrastructure building capacity than it used to. So what do you do? Well, the answer is you figure out a way to get Pakistan to place orders for billions and billions of dollars of Chinese infrastructure. And you figure out how to get Uganda and Tanzania and Zimbabwe to do this. The problem is that this is literally what Lenin described as imperialism. Right. Which is that when a country has surplus capital and surplus capacity and that its domestic market, its home market can't meet, it needs to go out and develop those markets elsewhere. But then the investments required are so large. You know, here's China, you know, with a, whatever it is, a $15 billion copper mine or something like that somewhere. You can't go to all that trouble and then have some African country wake up and say, oh, by the way, we don't like this and we're nationalizing it. It's ours now. <laughs> so your investments are so large that the financial investment drives a political entanglement. But meanwhile, in the country, your investment is not as popular as it ought to be because this is not how Zimbabweans would have developed Zimbabwe if they'd only been thinking of themselves. The development is along the lines of what's good for China and the exports that China wants from Zimbabwe, etc. And then it's like, well, why aren't they paying better wages? Why aren't they hiring more Zimbabweans in key managerial positions, etc.? Right. So you end up having an unpopular political and economic entanglement. And I think that's where China is going. I have to get one more thing from you, which is Mr. Putin had a mass, vast force in eastern Ukraine. I think there's considerable commentary that really it's about taking control of the Black Sea. I don't think the listeners to this podcast really understand what's going on and what that means, taking control of the Black Sea. And I wondered if you could walk us through that a little bit. Look, I don't think Putin wants, at this point, all of Ukraine. You know, I don't think he can afford it. Ukraine is very expensive. Ukraine, you know, needs money to pay its Gazprom bill. And to some degree, what we have is a situation where the West subsidizes Ukraine in various ways. And then Ukraine, because of those subsidies, is able to keep importing oil and gas from Russia, much to the benefit of Putin and his associates. What Putin doesn't want to see happen in Ukraine is for a Slavic country that many people in Russia would see as very similar to their own to establish a healthy, functioning, stable democracy that's well integrated into the West. Because the lesson on that to a lot of people in Russia is, well, they can do it. We can do it too. Right. And for Putin, it's very important to have the idea that, well, you know, all this democracy stuff, that may work fine for the French and the English and the American, you know, they do what they do. But we Slavs, we Russians, 
we have our own path and our own path happens to involve me running everything. Uh, it's just the way it is. <laughs> and so you undermine that and you are striking at, at, the, at the heart of Putin's power. So as long as the West is paying Ukraine's bills and Ukraine is failing to cohere into a modern, successful, fully integrated state, Putin is not unhappy with that status quo, Right. it seems to me. Right. And that's an element I think that a lot of people in the West miss, that Putin doesn't have a need to do a lot around the Ukraine right now. Walter, it was great to have you and great to see you again. Uh, hopefully, post-pandemic, we'll be able to get together and have dinner. I'm looking forward to it, John. Always good to have Walter Mead on the podcast. So for more deep intel on The Blob and its discontents, <laughs> check out John's newsletter, News Items. Just Google News Items Substack, John Ellis, and be sure to subscribe for the premium edition. I would also urge listeners to go to investableuniverse.com, which is your site that covers the global market of things. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Billy Gardella, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news. See you then.